In My Teacher's Footsteps, Chapter 9, read by Nick Scott. After a day's rest, our pilgrims must now climb to Domala, the hardest part of the Kora, the circumambulation of holy Mankailash. Nick is struggling because of past damage to his lungs. Chapter Nine, Beyond Thought. Made it, long gasp. Here, long gasp. I collapse onto a boulder, with another long gasp. Sit leaning forward on the staff. Large, long, greedy breaths. Head spinning. I look up. In front of me, the others are doing something. Building. I'd know what if my mind could formulate the concepts. Instead, all I do is stare. Good enough. No need to know. What is actually happening? Chris, Ajanamro, and Damarako have assembled a small pile of boulders. They are now tying clear plastic bags to it using a long shoelace. There are photos in the bags. Ajahn Char, a two-year-old girl standing in a field, and some clothing. Ajahn Amro is reverentially placing a small oblong metal box held in a silk carter on a flat stone set at the front. Then they stand together hands held together in prayer, and the monks chant. Roar is further back, his large black camera held to his face, taking photos. Must try to stand to join them. I tense my legs, pull on the staff. Can't. Sit back. More heavy breathing. Chest very painful. I wait through the chanting. Try again. This time I manage to stand. Head swimming. The chant ends. Where we are. Shishwald Sal, the place of death, at the base of the main ascent to Dolmala. The boulder-strewn mountainside is covered in clothing. Nearby, a red and white jumper pulled over a boulder, a white hat sitting on another, a bright yellow jumper spread-eagled on the ground. Everything placed deliberately. The most spectacular, a boulder further off wearing a white shirt under a striped multicoloured sleeveless cardigan. There are also the scattered remnants of offerings from previous years between the boulders. 
All of this is dotted across the slope as everyone has chosen their own special place or boulder. The slope looks, if anything, like the leftovers of a vast outdoor jumble sale. But this is a famous place and said to be of great power, overseen by the most important Tibetan tantric deity, Vajrayoni. Hers is the cairn at the top of the slope, just above us, cocooned in prayer flags. Here, the pilgrim discards some possession to represent the renouncing of attachment to worldly objects and to this very life. It can be a piece of clothing, a lock of hair or some valued object. It is done here, partway up to Dolmalar, because it is here where the climb starts to get difficult for everyone, even the Tibetans. So this is where my companions had decided to leave the special items they brought with them. The watch Ajahn Amro's mother gave to his father on their wedding day, inscribed with his name. That was in the little metal box. Damarako's young daughter's dress. The clothing in the plastic bag. She died at Chittos Monastery in a freak car fire. This was her favourite dress. Chris had brought his great-grandmother's thimble. For the pilgrim, the climb over Dolmalar represents death. The ascent at an altitude where breathing becomes increasingly difficult can render the whole experience transformative. The struggle upwards with one's faculties decreasing, the sense of release on reaching the pass, and then the joyous descent to another life. It is a powerful analogy for both Tibetan Buddhists and Indian Hindus. All our party had read and heard descriptions. Ajahn Suchito had made much of it in a presentation he gave us of his pilgrimage at Amaravati. It was an inspiring idea. But I'd started the climb in the state most people encounter on the final stretch. Just getting to Shiwaltar had been all I could focus on. In fact, it had been my sole focus to get to this site and to this ceremony. I couldn't imagine how I'd then get over the pass. But by leaving one hour earlier, surely I could make it in time for their ceremony. I had set off just after six, Chinese time, using the small torch on my mobile phone to find my way down the track which led to the bridge. The mountain tops were lit by starlight, but I could discern little in front beyond the light of my torch. I'd scanned the route the previous afternoon using my binoculars from my boulder in the sun. Dorji said I should cross the bridge, then follow a small path climbing the slope opposite to join the main pilgrim path further up. I thought I could discern it winding through the boulders, but when I got there, my little torch wasn't powerful enough and I hadn't the energy for searching. All I could do was start up the moderate incline ahead. Everything had come down to the simplicity of managing the next moment. Through boulders, 15 paces then stop. Lean on top of staff, heavy breathing. Peer ahead, 
make out a route between the next few boulders. Hope they aren't going to close in. Couldn't climb over them. Another 15 paces. Stop. Rest again on the staff. To the right, lights of the guest house. All sound drowned out by the roar of a small river. Somewhere that way. Start again. Find my way between boulders again. And so I went on, light slowly coming to the sky, the mountain above brightening, until there was light enough to make out more detail. I'd gone far enough by then that the dark shapes of Indian pilgrims setting out from the guesthouse were now behind me, crossing what must be a bridge over the river, its water reflecting the sky. Eventually I came through the boulders to the main track. By then the first of the Indian pilgrims had already passed, showing me where it was. The track was some three metres wide, cleared of boulders and in places cut into the slope or with sides built up with rocks. Walking on it was easier, but the slope was slightly steeper. Now down to 12 paces before resting. The path even underfoot. Good to leave the boulders. Pilgrims around me walking. Leave me behind each time I stop. Try to do a few more than 12 paces. Inspired by the even ground. But too winded. I have to sit down. Return to 12 paces. The first touch of pink appears on the mountain top above. Black, hairy yaks, each laden with two blue plastic barrels slung in cloth harnesses either side. Amble beside the track. Tibetan owners herding them from behind. My fellow pilgrims, all Indian, are finding the climbing really hard too. The slope steepens. It's only for a few hundred metres, but it seems an enormous distance to me. Then above to my left is Dorje walking along with the others following behind. So that's where the path from the monastery ran. I wheel myself up the slope, wanting to be at the top for when they get there. I don't manage it, but I'm not long behind and Rory waits for me to ask if I'm okay. Yes, just have to take it easy. From there the path is nearly flat, running through a small stony valley with large patches of snow and a meandering river. This is much easier. I can manage 20 or even 25 paces here before stopping. I'm now surrounded by Indian pilgrims. There is a lovely woman about my age who is absolutely determined. She is wearing a pair of trainers too big for her, one of which squeaks. One plodding step, then another plodding step with a squeak. She has one hand behind her back, her head leant forward, just focused on the path ahead. I come upon Ajahn Amro sitting beside the path, contemplating the view. I stop, leaning on my staff to share a few words between heavy breaths. 
I don't dare sit beside him, as it would take too long to stand again. The slopes around us are streaked with snow. Kailash just shows above one of them. He sets off. I try to follow, but can't manage his pace. From then on, I'm just intent on trying to keep up, somehow, keep him in sight. I can see splodges of colour on the steeper slopes ahead with a line of pilgrims passing up it. So I know that must be Shiwa Tsar where the ceremony will take place. I try not to take in the steep climb beyond up to Dolmala, which the first of the pilgrims are now ascending. The few times I do, my mind reels. How could I possibly manage that? It's best not to look. At their ceremony, I'm so tired from the effort of getting there, I can hardly manage to leave the possession of mine I plan to relinquish. My old hat. As they depart, I place it on a boulder and give it the slightest of nods. Then, just before he too sets off, I point it out to Rory for a photo. Once, it had been so significant. I expect leaving everything dear to us when we die will come down to this. Looking now at the photo Rory took of my old hat, I get a pang of grief. That hat really was the thing I was most fond of. Recognising how upset I got whenever I mislaid it, I decided this is what should be left at Kailash. It's a green and white knitted cotton balaclava, which I'd wear as a round hat. I'd found it in the Drakensberg Mountains ten years before, in an area without any sign of humans having visited. No paths, nothing else made by man. But there it was, sitting on a rock. I was climbing up to the Lesotho boulder on a four-day hike, from a little Buddhist centre where I was spending a few weeks, before returning to Chittos Monastery to undertake a three-month retreat. Since then, I'd woven so many mythologies around that hat. It was with me the next day on the edge of the Lesotho Upland Plateau as I searched frantically for the path back down, away from the massive thunderstorm building above me. The path led to the shelter of a cave and I'd been warned I had to get to it no later than one o'clock to avoid the daily lightning. People were killed each year by strikes during the season, so I was desperate. I'd sworn then that if I found the cave, I'd take the three-month retreat really seriously. No speaking, no going for walks in the woods around where I was staying. I could walk instead around the hut for exercise. Just in time, I found the path down and reached the cave as cracks of thunder broke above me. Then I'd worn that hat through the winter months of that powerful retreat in the forest, spinning it across the room to see if it could land on a coat peg each time I came indoors. If I managed it, the day's meditation would invariably go well. After the retreat, I called it my magic hat. I became very fond of it, wearing it every time I went walking. It went to the Alps, to the Pyrenees with Ajahn Sumedho and Suchito, 
to the Tatras. It went on the long road north in England with Ajahn Amro and on the St Paul's Way in Anatolia. And each time I accidentally left it somewhere, panic. Oh, where's my hat? But on Kailash, any sense of possession was beyond my capabilities. Even the concept of hat. There, green and white thing. I stayed sitting staring like that for a long time after the others had left. I'd again assured them I could make it. I just had to go slow. I didn't want to feel I had to keep up so they were not to wait for me. By the time I was able to start again, there was no sign of them. Ajahn Samedo struggled equally up the climb. He was 68 and had done none of the training we'd given him for his previous attempt. In the slide showing him walking the first two days of the Kora, he looks ashen-faced and exhausted. In those showing this climb, he's being helped by a middle-aged Tibetan man wearing monastic colours on John Levi's son, Alex. For the steepest bit, the one I was now facing, they are each holding an elbow and lifting him up. John told me on the phone how happy Alex had been to help like that, while Hal told me more about the Tibetan. At the start, it was John and his son who were with him, but then these Tibetans recognised that Samedo was some kind of holy man and they just had to help him. There was this one guy who just wouldn't leave him. I was up looking down to see if Samedo was okay. And this guy was just so obviously going to get him up that mountain. Lifting him up the boulders and all. He stayed with him right till Samedo was seated at the top. Don't think he said a darn thing. That was really something. There was no such help for me. I had to climb that slope alone. It had now come down to five steps and I could hardly lift my staff. But I was so glad I had it. The one time I tried sitting down, it took forever to get up again. And once up, I felt no better than when I'd sat. Worse, if anything. Resting on the staff, staring at the ground ahead, body racked with each breath. Each stop seemed to go on forever before I could manage to start again. Not that I had any concept of time, just the will to go on. The Indian pilgrims on ponies and their yaks had passed long before, then those able to climb on foot. Now it was just me and the slowest, all of them either elderly or very overweight, or their companions. There were a dozen or so, all being helped up by Sherpa or Tibetan guides, elbows held to lift them. One woman had two Sherpas nearly carrying her up. With their help, even the slowest of the Indian pilgrims 
were leaving me behind. A few Tibetan families doing the whole Kora in a day were now passing. Even they were stopping occasionally for gasp breaths before going on. Father carried most of the luggage, while mother guided the children up, one holding her four-year-old daughter's hand as she dutifully toddled along. Grandparents would struggle at the back of each group. One grandpa, finding it really hard, was twenty or so paces behind. He doubled right forward each time they stopped, never catching up the rest of his family. Only when they started again would he unbend and struggle on. The next and steepest part of that climb I still have seared on my memory. Not that I felt any suffering at the time. I wasn't capable of conceiving of that. It's the body's memory I now have of how close I was to death. I had no sense of breathing oxygen, even from the longest, deepest breath, and my chest ached horribly. By now, I was nearly alone on the mountainside, only the Indian woman with the two Sherpas above me. They were lifting her up each step by holding the back of her jeans. Another Sherpa stood beside them with a small tank of oxygen and mask. I stared up at the little tank of oxygen. But that's all I could manage, to stare. I couldn't even conceive what was wrong. But on a somatic level, the body knew that the pain in my chest was important. I had to be careful. Then, just a few steps further on, they had gone. I was trailing my staff now for the two or three steps I could manage before stopping. Unable to lift it, it would come bumping over the rocks behind me. Breath. Blankness. Breath. Try to lift a leg again. Really painful chest. Really painful. Stop. Breath. Wait. The pain in the chest subsides slightly. There is the sense of a memory. Someone wanting me to come back. Yes, I must not die. But it feels so close. Nurse myself up, slowly. There's no fear, just compassion for them, for me. Nursing this body up the slope. Never pushing, but never giving in. Endless. Was it an hour like that? Two hours? I've no idea. The steep slope was somehow eventually surmounted and a field of boulders lay ahead on a gentler slope with large patches of snow. A land of white snow and black rock. I can't see the pass, but it can't be far now. Two Tibetans are moving through the boulders doing full-length prostrations, leaving two parallel trails through each patch of snow. 
here I can take a few more steps and shorter stops. Not that I can catch up the Tibetans doing the prostrations. Another Tibetan family come by and then a group of young Westerners in outdoor gear wearing scarves tied round their heads. I sit on a boulder. After ten minutes of staring at the ground, I can look up and around. There's a rising cliff of rock and snow to my right. I'm higher than most of the peaks in the distance, so it really can't be far now. I feel so weak and my chest hurts even sitting here on the boulder. But I've survived. Two snowcocks fly by, a whirr of white and brown. My brain can't manage the name or the memory of Rory having reported them the day before. Only acknowledgement. Getting up, I'm alone again. But then, eventually, there is the path ahead. A vast swirling field of colour with people sitting amongst it. I manage much of the last hundred metres, which is nearly flat, in one go and collapse against a prayer flag covered boulder. There are people, what sounds like Russian being spoken. A young Tibetan mother beside me suckling her baby. That's all I can take in for a long time. That and all the colour. Eventually I can start to think again and I look around. Prayer flags are everywhere, spiralling out from a central pole, draped over boulders, flowing down the hillside. So many layers where I sit that it feels like comfortable carpet, both underneath me and against the boulder I lean on. Some dozen Tibetans sit about in small groups, chatting, smiling at me when they catch my eye. The Russian speakers are assembling to leave on one side, an older guy talking to the rest who look in their twenties, their scarf-covered heads nodding in understanding. Beyond are the mountains, Kailash on one side, other lower mountains beyond. I am here. I've made it. This has been the sole aim of the last nine hours of incredibly slow climbing. But there is no sense of release, no joy of achievement, nothing, not even relief. Just a numbed acceptance that it was over and a promise that I would never, ever do anything like that again. I'd brought a line of prayer flags with me, rolled in a small ball in my pack. On each one I'd written in black felt tip the name of a friend or a wish for someone or something of benefit to others. Some had been requests, others I'd added. I struggled to my feet and I managed to tie one end to the main pole and pull it across to a big boulder, tying the other end to some more prayer flags. My line of flags hangs only just off the ground, but it will have to do. I take a photo with my mobile phone and sit back down against my rock to recover from the effort. Ten minutes later, a group of young Tibetans arrive and walk all over my flags, trampling them into the mat of others 
while tying their own flags much higher and better than I'd managed. By now it was nearly three Chinese time and I realised as I recovered that in fact I wasn't so much tired as simply suffering from the effect of altitude with anything I tried to do. But I was really, really hungry. I'd been running on empty for hours without realising it. From here I knew the path descended steeply to a tea house where I could eat. I should be fine going down, and the valley there was lower than the one I'd left, with a gentle gradient downhill all the way to the monastery where we were staying that night. Now I felt I could manage it, but I also knew how long the rest of the day's walk was. Ajahn Suchito had warned us. He'd arrived at their camp just before dark and utterly exhausted. So I had to get on. Although I had a torch, I didn't want to worry my companions. If I could, I wanted to get there before dark. went through something similar with Ajahn Sumedho. On the top I wanted to take pictures and stuff. That pass was really some place to hang out. He told me over the phone. And Sumedho wanted a rest. But I felt great. I trained some for the trek so I was fine. So I waited as the others went on. When he was ready to go there was just John Levi's son left who helped us down a few difficult rocks. Then he went on, and I was the only one left with Sumedho. He was real tired. As we'd say out west, he was leaking a little oil. So I was holding his hand, keeping him upright. We'd walk about a hundred yards, then he'd have to sit down, and we'd rest, and maybe talk a bit. And then he'd get up and walk some. That was fine to start with. I figured the Tibetan guys would come back soon. But we'd walk and Samada was just so tired. I was taking it real easy and waiting for their help. But nobody showed up. Nobody showed up to help us. All the guides had just gone on to do their thing at the camp or whatever. And I was up there with him on my own. No Tibetan pilgrims? We weren't the last of the past, but the rest overtook us as we started down the other side. Even Panasaro, his assistant, had taken off. He'd been with Samedo all the time up till then, but he was really hurting. He had fever blisters, and he was in a lot of pain, you know, so he wouldn't have been a whole lot of help. So yeah... We ended up alone on that trail. Eventually, I was just steaming inside, he explained. Where are those guys? Why are they leaving the revered monk out here by himself? Some guide should have stayed with us. In the army, they used to call it the drag, the guy who brought up the rear. Then it was really starting to get late. 
How long was this? I don't know. Six, maybe seven hours in all. We were on the trail together. After I'd been steaming, then I was really starting to think he might die on me. God, I was thinking, Arjun Samedo, I don't want you to die. I mean, I could have carried him. I was still healthy and feeling okay, but I couldn't have got that far. And I was thinking, maybe soon I'm going to have to leave him and go get help. He was just so weak and looked awful. But he just kept on moving, step by step, holding my hand. With me praying, he was not going to die on me. So I was at one point when I was just boiling inside, really boiling with it all. Where were these guides? And then Arjun Samada looked over at me and he said, Isn't this beautiful? Isn't this mountain just incredible, Hal? What a wonderful, wonderful experience. And he was just about collapsed, nearly dead. That moment was the most brilliant teaching moment I've ever experienced in this life. In face of all that adversity, he found the joy of being on Mount Kailash. And all I found was anger. For that one moment, that whole trip was worth it. It was a gold mine. And your anger collapsed? Yeah, yeah, that anger went right away. And how laughs a lot at the phone at the memory. Then it was fine. I was still concerned. But it was how it was. Just the two of us going down the trail bit by bit. I remember him saying later on, You know how? There's a lot of merit in helping an old monk like this. Eventually, it was nearly dark. I could hardly see the trail. Fortunately, it was clear sky, so the light from the stars helped. And well, when we were only about 300 yards from the camp, the Tibetan guides came rushing back and took him. Two or three guys helped Samedo into camp, making a big fuss of him. But by that time, it didn't really matter. We'd made it. Somehow, I'd made it too before dark, just like them, step by step. For me, the light was just enough to discern Rory looking out for me on a rise just before the gompa. But my companions weren't worried, even though it was well past nine, Chinese time. They'd known I was coming as Dorje had asked another guide to call him on his mobile phone when I passed. He was with the Ukrainian party, not Russian, which was camped two hours further up the valley. I felt happy. The first time since I'd set out to climb Dolmala early the previous morning, and I was sitting on a rock outcrop, looking down the remainder of the valley. Here, the valley sides were no longer mountains, more rounded downland. Ahead, the river cut into the valley's floor, dropping into a small gorge, exposing bedrock, and I was enjoying the incredible variety of rock colours, 
crimson, light mauve, green, and a mauve so dark it was virtually black, amidst the usual dark reddish-brown. In the distance the valley opened into a wide, hazy plain. From here Ajahn Suchito had been inspired by the sight of Lake Manasarova and the distant Himalayas. Peering through my binoculars, I could just make out what might be distant water, but no mountains amidst the haze. Still, just to be alive and happy was wonderful. I'd found this spot by taking a faint side path, away from the mounted Indian pilgrims. I could now see a long line of them in the distance. Blobs of red on brown ponies following the track which took to the valley side to avoid the gorge. I could hear others passing. Ponies clip-clopping, bells tinkling, occasional snatches of Hindi conversation. But none came this way. None to defecate or to discard the rubbish that littered the main trail. Only the occasional Tibetan porter or Nepali guide would choose this lesser route so as to keep the pile of money stones carved with the holy mantra respectfully to their right. Each would salute me, perhaps mumble a prayer to the stones and pass on back to the main track. The night before, I'd slept for the first time in Tibet, laying my head on the pillow and actually fallen straight asleep. It lasted three hours and felt like taking a long thirst-quenching drought. I woke in the night refreshed, went outside and sat in meditation beside the monastery's large copper prayer wheel, wrapped in my sleeping bag. I was there for two hours, first experiencing all over again the discomfort, the sense I was so close to dying. When that had passed, there was a great peace. Eventually, I lay on my side and fell asleep where I was. I woke later in the night with the memory of being on the mountainside and knowing I had to return. But now I could also remember why. Two women who came regularly for meditation had made a point of asking me to come back after the last group evening meditation sitting. Then, as they left, Mish had turned to me and said that she, too, wanted me to come back. Recalling it, tears gently rolled down my cheeks in the cold night air. For the previous evening's walk, I'd had the valley to myself, but not this capacity to enjoy it. I welcomed catching up with the Sherpa guides, who were helping the last Indian woman. Chatting to them kept me going. For me, there'd been no sense of release once I was over Dolmalar Pass. The idea of the descent as a birth into a new life felt like a rather nasty joke. I've since read that it's the same for mountaineers climbing the higher Himalayan peaks without oxygen bottles. The body is unable physiologically to supply the high of achievement without enough oxygen. So for me, there was only the need to get down and then the long, exhausted trudge down the valley. These guides were from the same high Nepalese valleys as Indra, our guide in Humla. There were four of them, 
two helping the woman, coaxing her along whenever she collapsed again, and two more, including the leader, walking ahead, stopping every so often to wait. The leader told me how difficult they found the Indian pilgrims. They are only thinking of themselves. Like this woman, we try to get her to take a horse. No, she will not. We say, she can have one free. No, so we have to carry her up the mountain. On other side, again we offer horse. No, all the time, she says, it does not matter if I die. I am close to God. But she's not close to God. She is just selfish. He also told me, they shout orders at us as if they are owning us. This is not proper respect. We are just servants to them. And they are so dirty, dropping their rubbish, cans, food bags, bottles on the path. Just like that, he pointed at two drink cans we were passing. And they take a shit right next to the path, where everyone can see them, not behind the rocks. The Indian woman eventually made unnecessary work for the Chinese, too. As night fell, they sent an ambulance up the valley to collect her. By then, the head guide and I had walked on, leaving the others with her. As we walked, he told me that other Indian tour companies were worse than the one he worked for. To save money, they employed Tibetan guides. They have no Hindi, and the Indians no Tibetan, so the Indian pilgrims get no advice about how to be in the mountains. The two Indian pilgrims, not four, who had died the day before, had been with one of these groups, he told me. Now they would be buried on the mountain at the place for dead pilgrims, beside Shiswaltar, where the clothes are left. When I'd relayed all this to the others next morning over breakfast, Ajahn Amro added that a guide had commented to him on how stupid the Indian pilgrims were going round Kailash on a pony. How can that do them good? But for me, that morning at least, the Indian pilgrims were simply what they were. I found pleasure in everything, even the inane questions from the ones on the ponies. The last of the Indian pilgrims were clambering onto their blue Chinese coaches, including a party I'd passed earlier, a group of young men led by a middle-aged guy wearing a bandana. Then he'd been making a dramatic speech in Hindi with sweeping hand gestures. He now gave them another, facing out from the coach's first step, before they all clambered on board. Then the coaches pulled away, trailing dust clouds, as I headed west, along the pilgrim path, which had turned to follow the mountain's southern flank back to Darshan. The Tibetans, now riding their ponies again, trotted ahead, bells tinkling. I watched them into the distance, trailing steadily smaller dust clouds. 
also way ahead were the returning porters, most having left their loads, and amongst them I could make out my companions. The vast plain to my left featured the odd distant group of grazing yaks, and beyond them was Lake Manasarova, now discernible by eye. Hills rose to one side of the lake, white-topped mountains on the other, and way off the thin white jagged line of the Himalayas across the horizon. It was an impressive sight, marred only by the new Chinese visitor centre with its giant concrete billboard. Today was just a half day's walking, but the day before I'd been walking for more than 15 hours, so that morning I got steadily more tired, until even the occasional slight rise in the path would bring me to a halt, exhausted, any sense of enjoyment now completely gone. Peering ahead, Darshan seemed a dusty mirage that never got any nearer, with no sign now of the others. For the last hour, a herd of yaks ambled slowly behind me, encouraged along by the whistles and grunts of several Tibetans, but still stopping to take munches of grass. Even so, they steadily gained on me, as I was now so shattered, I too had to stop often. The yaks actually helped, shooing me along the road. But then an empty tourist coach approached, tooting its horn, and we all had to move aside. When I restarted, I was surrounded by them. So I came into Darshan amidst a herd of yaks, passing empty Tibetan houses with boarded windows, probably designated by the Chinese for demolition as another hotel site. Over a bridge, I turned down the main street and left the yaks to amble on. I had no idea where my companions were, so I was looking for our minibus. But the main street had several, all white, it being the standard Chinese model. No, not this one, too new. No, no not that one, wrong luggage. And so on, until I'd reached the hotel building sites on the edge of town. There, I had to turn back and walk, very slowly, back up the hill. My companions would be eating somewhere as it was nearly midday. But where? Back at the crossroads, I stood lost and exhausted. Then, thank God, a truck pulled away and there was our minibus. Go over. Find the driver. He understands. Follow him to the Chinese restaurant behind shops. Dorji and the others are sitting round a table filled with bowls of Chinese food, eating. There are hellos. Sit down. Queries that I'm okay. Yes. But I'm far too tired to eat. A bowl of rice is placed in front of me. Far, far too tired. I just look at it, at them eating. I'm too thirsty too. I drink, 
which feels better, but I still can't eat. So I watch as my favourite dishes are finished off by my companions, one by one. But who cares? The walking is finally over. Manasarova is a vast blue lake, turquoise blue in places, varying to cobalt blue, depending on one's angle, the time of day and depth of water. The sky above is clear, very pale blue, and only the mountains surrounding it have touches of cloud. Occasionally a thicker wadge, like today. Three mountains on the distant far side look like they might have rain. I am sitting by the shore with my back leaning against a boulder. To my right is the immense-looking Gula Mandata, regarded by the Hindus as another holy mountain. It's higher, more massive and covered in more snow, but it doesn't stand alone like Kailash. It's an outlier of the main Himalayan range. The range forms a jagged white frieze on the left of Gula Mandata with banks of cloud beyond where Nepal must be. The land before the Himalayan ridge is lower, rounded, rolling, streaked with patches of snow yet to melt from the last winter. Further around the lake shore, the land rises to become rounded mountains on the lake's opposite far side, including those with the cloud today. The bird life on the lake is constant, During the several hours I've been sitting contemplating the vast blueness, something has always been happening. Rufous shell ducks dabbling further along the shore, bar-headed geese flying by, honking, great crested greaves muttering out on the water, or small waders picking their way along the waterline. All this activity is peripheral though. The bird life is feeding on the waterweed growing in the shallows the detritus from it, or the insect life living on it. Out there, where the water is deeper, darker, it is undisturbed. That's where my gaze rests. I thought I spotted a few meganza further out. They dive for fish, but realised I was wrong. Maybe there are few fish in such a cold body of water. The lake is certainly not fished by man. For the Tibetans, it would be a sacrilege to fish such a holy lake. No boats are allowed to disturb its surface. The lake receives acts of devotion, however. Along its shore are assemblages of stones, cairns, small manny walls, flat stones placed one upon another to make little towers. In caves and overhangs on the low cliffs, the rock walls are incised with mantras. On the first day of our stay there, I climbed slowly up to those caves, thinking I might sleep in one, inspired by the idea of the hermits who had once lived there. 
but opted that night instead for the simplicity of erecting my tent near the shore. There wasn't much sleep, though. The effect of the altitude allowed me only an hour, but outside at least I could sit and watch the lake under the starlight. Three days we have been here. Much of it I've spent sitting or walking by Manasarova. I see the others occasionally. Rory heading off to explore the nature. Damaraco out walking. A pomado sitting by the lake, near to where we are staying. Ajanamro spends most of the time meditating in their room. While Chris left early this morning to walk as far as he could round the lake and then return. He'd wanted to undertake the Cora of the lake, or at least part of it, as Roger had suggested we might, staying in the gompers on its shore. But the others weren't interested, and I wouldn't have been able. He had so much energy, he told us, and wanted to use it to do his absorbed walking. All I could manage was short bursts of slow walking. Then, at each seated stop, spending another long period contemplating the lake. I too was forced to give up a desire to the group dynamic. When we'd arrived, I'd wanted to stay in Chugompa. After all, we carried a message and gifts from the abbot of Yaobang Monastery for his disciple, Lama Songu, who lived at the Gompa. I felt we should visit there first and see if we were invited to stay but the others wanted the comfort of the guest house by the shore. The compromises of enforced group travel could be vexing. I was now breaking Dorje's rule about staying together by sneaking out with my tent and sleeping bag. Out of Betton guest house, along with a few others, faced Manasarova. There were also a large Indian Dharamsala, a pilgrimage hostel with tattered posters on its outside wall advertising past pilgrimages. Special spiritual yatra to protect Mother Earth, Kailash of Manasarova, 17th of July 2012, Universal Peace Sanctuary, Bangalore, with a smiling guru before the holy mountain. Behind the guest house, a few recently built small hotels lined the road. The whole place reminded me of a small English seaside resort, circa 1950, out of season. Occasionally a coachload of Indian pilgrims would arrive, noisily light a fire on the shore beside the guesthouse and perform some kind of ceremony, with lots of photos being taken. They would come and go in an hour or two though, leaving the place quiet again. None stayed in the sleepy Dharamsala. We climbed up to Chugompa the morning after we'd settled into the hostel, Dorje leading the way me trailing behind again. Dorje even came back down to where I was stopped, breathing heavily. Are you okay? I'm fine. Please go on. I'll catch you up. 
The crag above was adorned with several square monastic coloured buildings, two stupas of piled stones on top and fluttering prayer flags everywhere. As I surmounted the last of the climb, gasping heavily, the rest of the group were making their way along a stone flagged path with a small outer wall on the side of the crag and then disappearing via a few cut steps around a rock outcrop. I caught up with them visiting a cave. I'd missed the explanation again, but guess this must be another cave used by some saint in the past. The principal image behind the fluttering butter lamps seemed to be Guru Rinpoche, as Padma Sambhavwa is also known. Outside, a Tibetan man in early middle age wearing semi-monastic clothing stood waiting. Is this Lama Songu? I wondered, trying to behave with respect in case it was. But no, when Dorji came out, we moved on. The steps wound round and up the rock face, arriving at a chapel built directly above the cave. Another Tibetan appeared, much older, with grey hair tied in a ponytail and wispy beard, again wearing monastic coloured maroon and yellow top, this time combined with a pair of natty grey pinstripe trousers. He looked like the result of the game where everyone draws a different portion on folded paper which is then opened out. Wild hermit, Tibetan monk and city banker. So was this crazy dude Lama Songu? No, he directed Delge on to another chapel further round the crag. Steps cut in the rock led up, down and around. As we circled the crag, the view was changing. We'd started looking out over Lake Manasarova. Now we were looking at a wider and higher hill than the one we were on, with a large red radio mast on top, which Dorje had warned us we must not climb up to. Below us, between the two hills, was a stream bed and the road leading to our guest house, while beyond the mast was the white top of Gurlu Mandata, mountain. Further round we could see a village nestled on our hill's flank, a dozen or so flat-roofed houses with the road running past, and a warm path leading up to the crag. Beyond them was a wide plain, slightly green in colour, with a thin line of meandering marshy land leading to a distant second large lake. Rakshas Tal, the Black Lake, also holy, but a place of dark forces. Small herds of yak grazed on the plain. Then we were descending a slope to another chapel, larger and more modern than the previous one, from which we could hear chanting. Beside it was the main entrance to the Gompa, with a dusty road leading from the main body of the hill, of which the crag was a promontory. The chanting stopped and another monk emerged from the chapel, but far too young. When Dorje again asked, he was told Lama Songo lived in the buildings opposite. Across on the main hill, two homesteads were each contained in a compound wall. To their right was a large white stupa, and rising behind and above them all, gazing on us benignly, was Kailash, 
not just its familiar black and white summit, but also the top part of its snow-covered flanks. If this crag had not once had a venerable hermit living in a cave, you'd need to invent one. The sight felt so powerful. Lama Songu's house, the outbuildings and the compound's wall were made of grey mud, as were the flat roofs supported by timbers poking out of the side. A dog barked in the dusty yard, bringing a middle-aged woman dressed traditionally from the house. She showed us through to the main room. There, Lama Songu, in his seventies with grey pigtail tied in a knot and beaming a welcoming smile, was delighted to meet us. He was also delighted to meet Buddhist monks, and then thrice delighted when we produced the letter from his teacher, Pemu Rikshaw Rinpoche. He couldn't stop wanting to do things for us, making Tibetan tea, using an ancient electric blender he connected by two wires to a car battery to produce the best buttered tea I'd ever tasted, picking things up from around the room to show us and announcing that he'd have all the chapels open for us whenever we wanted while we were staying in the guest house. Ajahn Amro tried to offer a traditional carter, but he would have none of that and kept pouring the tea. Then he offered us, all carters, very good quality silk ones. While all this was going on, I was taking in the amazing assortment of Buddhist and non-Buddhist objects in his room. The small shrine was filled to overflowing with brass images, votive bowls and photos. The largest was of his teacher, Pemo Riksha Rinpoche. The TV set beside it was topped with an old-fashioned motorcycle helmet plus a half-eaten pack of biscuits. Tibetan scripture books were piled on shelves, clothes in one corner. Chopped onions and a knife sat on a board, children's toys on the floor. The obligatory picture of the four presidents of China and a big poster of Mount Kailash was set on the walls amidst many smaller religious pictures most with curling corners and torn edges. The cupboards, all painted in bright Tibetan colours with glass doors, were similarly crammed full. At the doorway, a young girl's head would occasionally dart from behind the door to take a shy look at us. Once he'd finally settled, Lama Songo told us his story. His family had always been connected with Rinpoche's family. In previous generations, they'd been his family's teachers and patrons. Both Rinpoche's father and grandfather had been Nyingma Lamas here in the area around Mount Kailash. But they had to flee the Chinese and Chu Gompa had then been destroyed by the Cultural Revolution. In 1984, Lama Songo decided he had to restore the Gompa, so he moved into the empty buildings as a janitor. The next year, he heard Rinpoche was setting up a monastery in Nepal for training monks, so he toured the region collecting money. 
Then he crossed illegally into Nepal and met his Rinpoche for the first time. He'd learned so much. He'd been taken to Bugaya for the Dalai Lama's empowerment the following January. After that he ordained as a monk and then returned here. Slowly the Gompa had been restored. Others had joined the community and now he was the leader. He was leaving the next day for a regional meeting to represent the Gompa. Ajahn Amro told him that he too was an abbot and had to go to meetings like that and showed him pictures of Amaravati. Lama Songu nodded and smiled. Yes, there was so much of this to do. So now he lived here. His wife was long dead and he had no children. He had taken in the adopted daughter of his sister and her child. We left, walking down the hill, each wearing our white silk carter and feeling uplifted by our visit. Dorji was particularly affected. His usual taciturn and guarded manner had gone and instead he chatted away enthusiastically about the Buddhism of his childhood and things his mother had told him of the teachings. That was the second time I'd seen him like that. The first had been in the minibus on his second day with us when he realised that these three Westerners really were Buddhist monks. Now I reflected on what his life must be like. Based on what I'd learned while teaching in Latvia, once part of the Soviet Union, I guessed he had to be an informer to be able to do the job he did. The Communist Party would want him to report to a party official after each of his trips. If he didn't provide information, then he would lose his job. That was why he told us to be so careful. In Latvia, the young people had told me how difficult it had been for the likes of Dorje's generation, growing up during the worst of the oppression, and that we should not judge them too harshly. On the drive from Mount Kailash, when he wouldn't let us take a photo of a plastic policeman which had been draped with the white carter scarves by Tibetan pilgrims, which would have made such a wonderful image, I was annoyed. Now I felt sympathy. Over the following days, both Damarako and Apamada took Lama Songo up on his generosity, climbing several times to spend time in the cave or one of the Gompa's chapels. The others also went at least once, but for me the short climb was too daunting and I just wandered slowly along the beach. We met for our meals and for tea in the afternoon. By the second day, enough vitality had returned for me to think to ask Chris how the Cora had been for him. His eyes lit up as he described how powerful the final climb to the pass had been. Ahead were the three mountain peaks representing the three bodhisattvas of bliss, compassion and emptiness. And he had sent a triangle with compassion represented by Kailash itself, holding together the others. He told us in Kathmandu how he felt a strong need to develop compassion. He'd done a lot of concentration practice and knew bliss and emptiness well. Now, on the side of Kailash, he understood and was immersed in compassion. 
the much larger, stronger compassion needed to hold the other two. He climbed the whole way up to the pass, filled with joy, gazing up over and again at the three peaks, with Kailash gazing back down at him benevolently, so that he felt carried to the top effortlessly. His time at the top was then a celebration of what had just happened. Everything he did, playing with stones, flying prayer flags, was an expression of this powerful insight. By the time he finished telling me, there were tears in his eyes. Until then, the dullness had narrowed my vision to just my own concerns. So Chris's story acted as a revelation. I had companions who had been experiencing wonderful things. Over the subsequent days, I took to asking each of the others how their Korah had been. Damarako told me that he'd finally resolved the deep anguish of his daughter's death all those years before, and now felt light and free. Rory had felt connected to pure light and energy, and had floated down the other side of the pass. Even Apamado, despite a constant migraine, had been deeply moved by the final climb and its effects, particularly the sense of release and joy. Ajahn Amro's Cora had been the same, as he described in Amaravati Monastery's newsletter on his return. He also told me how the steady progression from walking in the Atlas Mountains, then climbing up through Humla and over the Himalayan passes, had made it possible to climb the final pass with comparative ease. My breathing sounded like Darth Father, but inside I was fine. I was carried up by the shared aspiration of all the Indian pilgrims and those Tibetans doing full-length prostrations. Now at Lake Manasarova, he was enjoying the result of the Kora in his meditation. It helped to hear how much my companions had benefited from a pilgrimage that I'd instigated and organised. But for me, the joy I'd had on the morning after we crossed the pass had faded before I got to Darshan, never to return. Instead, I felt disconnected, not wanting to be there but I was reluctant to tell them that. I felt like the killjoy at a party. While they were enjoying themselves so much at Lake Manasarova, as Ajahn Suchito had told us we would, I simply yearned to go home. On our last day, I was resting in our bedroom after the meal when I heard Roger's loud voice coming from the main room. He was interrogating one of the monks about why we hadn't undertaken the Kora of Lake Manasarova. It is very powerful. You had three days here. Two days is enough to do this important sections. He said something about five coloured sands that had to be collected and other things that we had missed. My heart sank. I remembered he told us we might meet him at Lake Manasarova leading another party and I realised that he'd want to interrogate me too. Then he was speaking German, and there were other German voices. Oh no, not lots of intense Germans as well. I couldn't cope with that. I got up and stole out without meeting anyone, resolving I'd climb to the Gompa to make up for my cowardice. 
The slow, difficult climb was well worth the effort. As I circled the crag, the incredible views were again breathtaking. This time, though, I kept climbing, spiralling up to find myself at the top between the two stupas. I sat there with streams of fluttering prayer flags descending all around me, the views between them coming and going. It was an amazing experience. But despite it, I was still aware of the background sense there was to everything I experienced. I just wanted to go home. Once home, things would be ordinary, assuring, secure. I didn't want any more adventure. I felt I didn't want to see anything or go anywhere ever again. Roger spotted me returning several hours later and called me into the main room, where he was sitting drinking tea with a bevy of Slovakian, not German, women, all of them younger than him and listening to his every word. The monks tell me the Korov was difficult for you, yeah? Yes. Why is this? I told him the problems that had started at high altitude in Tibet because of the damage to my lungs I'd forgotten about. Then about the climb up to the pass. How I felt close to death on the steepest part of the climb, my chest so painful. The few steps I could walk and waiting so long before I could do a few more. The sense that I had to nurse myself up that slope. I felt so close to death. But maybe I was just imagining it. No, you were not imagining. You were extremely close. You are a very brave man. But I didn't feel brave. I just wanted to go home. <laughs>